This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 16th, 2015. Tragana Air Flight 267, an ATR-42 turboprop with 54 people on board, is taking off from Sentani to Oksibil in the eastern Indonesian province of Papua. This is the fifth leg that the crew has flown today and the second leg from Sentani to Oksibil. Oksibil Airport is nestled in a valley between mountains and can be tricky to fly into. While on a visual approach, the plane contacts air traffic control and disappears into a cloud. Several minutes later, air traffic control realizes they haven't heard from the Trigana flight in a while. Repeated calls to the aircraft go unanswered. A pilot departing Oxibil reports seeing smoke on a nearby mountainside. The plane has impacted a mountain, killing all on board. Why would a relatively modern plane with a qualified crew and safety equipment collide with a mountain? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, it's Gus and Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Gus. We're here with another episode to hopefully uh, entertain and educate. We, we, we serve multiple purposes here at Black Box Down. Yeah. Black Box Down Enterprises. I want to get, <laughs> get like, like a corporate mega lord. Yeah, uh, trademark. And you can learn more about this new exciting corporation at Black Box Down Pod <laughs> uh, on Instagram or, uh, or Facebook or Twitter. Twitter. Even YouTube. Oh, yeah. We got YouTube too, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we got uh, tons of other information. Uh, I'm going to definitely post some, f- I know a, a couple of images I'm going to post related to this incident already on our social media. And uh, you can check it all out there. I, 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 I follow it. I think you should too. Hey, I do too. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> okay, so this Trigana Air flight took off from Sintani Airport in Jayapura at 2.22 p.m. East Indonesian time. And it was expected to land in Oxibil at 3.04 p.m. I mean, so that's a really quick flight. That's what, 42 minutes? Yeah. And this was the fifth flight of the day for this crew and plane and their second time flying from Sentani to Oxibil. This flight had two pilots, Captain, uh, and I apologize, I'm going to do my best. There's a lot of Indonesian names. So I'm going to do my best. I'm, I'm probably going to end up butchering them. Uh, it was Captain Hasanuddin had 25,200 hours of total flying experience and 7,300 hours experience in ATR-42s. First officer, Aryadin Falani, who had a total of 3,800 hours, of which 2,600 were in ATR-42. And this specific plane was 27 years old. It was, like I said, it's an ATR-42. We've talked about planes like this before. Mm-hmm. It's like, it would, you'd be considered a regional plane. It's got a high wing design, two propellers, doesn't seat a ton of people. Uh, it's definitely used for like, smaller airports or like quick hops like this, yeah. you know, 42 minutes. This is, you know, perfect for this kind of plane. This plane was actually originally operated in the United States. Oh. Yeah. And then got transferred to Trigana Air in 2005. So it had been with Trigana Air for about 10 years by this point. Besides the pilots, there were three other crew members and 49 passengers. This was actually the deadliest accident involving the ATR-42 and the deadliest accident in Trigana Air's history. Oh, no. I guess because what's what's... With 10 crew and 49 passengers, it's probably close to the... Five crew. Oh. Yeah, three flight attendants and two pilots. Five crew and 49 passengers. That's, is that close to like the capacity for that plane? Yeah, it's going to end up being pretty close. I think, you know, I, don't, I think the ATR-42, typically you're going to expect to hold maybe just under 50 people. So this was pretty close to full, if not entirely full. And again, 
every airline has slightly different yeah. seating configurations, so it can be a little different. I don't know specifically how many seats were on this specific flight, but this was pretty close to full, mm-hmm. if not full. So the aircraft was on the final section of its scheduled route at the time of the accident. Like I said, they were preparing to land in Oxabil. Yeah. Statements originally blamed bad weather conditions for contributing to the crash, but, you know, upon investigation, the weather was later confirmed as being good by the Minister of Transportation, whose name was Ignatius Jonan. He stated that bad weather was not the cause of the crash. Okay. The Ministry of Transportation acknowledged that Indonesia's air navigation system equipment was outdated, dating back to the 1950s. Oh. That sounds a little scarier than it is, but that it's not great. Yeah. A lot of these systems are old, and what we're going to dig into that in a bit, actually. Okay. It, it, did, it was part of the problem. And without updated instrument landing systems, the airports and flight crew would have to rely on visual flight rules. And we've talked about this before, visual flight rules. Like, you have to be able... It's visual flight. You have to be able to see yeah. everything that's going on. You know, you can't fly in poor visibility. Uh, you can't fly through clouds. And in fact, the, the approach for... It coming into Oxybill is a visual approach. You know, like uh-huh. I said, there was no precision approach, precision landing system. They have to be able to see the runway. We've talked about this actually yeah, in, another, yeah. in another incident where they have to be able, yeah, they have to see the runway the entire time and um, make sure they know exactly where they are and what they're doing. There seems like a lot of instances in which you wouldn't be able to fly with that, but yeah, uh, it really restricts you. You yeah. know, without uh, the modern technology to help guide you to the ground. I have, this is a little off topic. You said they could they can't fly through clouds without that technology. Yeah. Even if they're way up high and there's no chance of like running into a mountain or anything, could they still not fly through clouds? Like, well, at this point, they're, they're this is just the approach section. Okay. Yeah, you know they're they're doing what's called a VFR approach. So now that they're coming down to land, they have to stay out of clouds and they have to keep okay. the runway in sight. But they could be in clouds up way up uh, yeah. cruising, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I think above. 18,000 feet, any flight above 18,000 feet has to be what they call an instrument flight, an IFR mm. uh, flight plan. There is no VFR flight above 18,000 feet, probably specifically for the reason you're asking there, Chris. Okay. Yeah, above 18,000 feet. We talked about this actually uh, when we did our airspace episode. Uh-huh, above uh-huh. 18,000 feet is Class A airspace. And Class A airspace is all IFR flight. Okay. Even if you can totally see, like you have to have an IFR flight plan above 18,000 feet. Uh, presumably because... You might encounter clouds. You don't want to have to go around it. It's the most, mm-hmm. it's like the freeway, you know? Yeah, you're, okay. You're going to go fast <laughs> and you're going to go straight and, uh, you know, you're fine up there. Yeah. So no distress call was made prior to failing to make contact with the ground staff at Oxabil Airport. Indonesia's National Search and Rescue Agency sent 250 personnel to Oxabil in response, but high altitude prevented air transport recovery of the victims and overland efforts were hindered by bad weather. After three days, 17 bodies have been carried out from the crash site. And the next day, the flight data recorder was found. So this plane impacted a mountainside that I think people had never been to. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, it was very remote. It was very high. It was very steep. They couldn't get helicopters up there. It was a very treacherous climb to get up there. It was really difficult. So people had never been to is in, like, not even mountain climbers? or like I don't so- think so. No. Like, wow. <laughs> it was, it was, it's extremely remote. Wow. It's crazy to think there's places like that in the world, right? Yeah. I just assume we've like wandered everywhere. I mean, and maybe we have through like ancient history, but I don't know. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe like one or two people have been up there, but it's not like a regular thing. Yeah. There's no, there's no trails. There's no paths. It's no, there, there's no like, oh, go climb this way. It's easier. It's like, <laughs> oh no, we have to figure it all out. Oh. 
So the investigation was done by the Indonesian National Transport Safety Committee, who's known as either the NTSC or KNKT. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you hear me say either of those, it's the investigation committee. Along with three investigators from France's BAE and four technical advisors from aircraft manufacturer ATR. The passenger manifest indicated that everyone on board was Indonesian. The second in command acted as pilot flying while the pilot in command acted as pilot monitoring. We've talked about this before. One pilot's doing the flying, the other pilot's doing the double checking. So all this is saying is at the time of the crash, the first officer was the one physically flying the plane and the captain was just monitoring and making sure mm-hmm. everything was okay. All right, so the times are going to be a little confusing. I'm switching from uh, Indonesian time to universal time because, you know, these reports are always in universal time, but I'll tell you what the difference is. Okay. So at 2.55 p.m. Indonesian time, which is UTC plus nine, the pilot made first contact with Oxabil Aerodrome Flight Information Service and reported he was on descent from an altitude of 11,500 feet at position admissible and was acknowledged by the <laughs> AFIS officer. So 2.55 p.m. East Indonesian time is 5.55 a.m. universal time. So this is all 5.55 universal time. In the afternoon. This is the afternoon, right. This yeah. is almost 3 p.m. in the afternoon, despite the fact the time says 6 a.m. So the uh, Oxabil Aerodrome Flight Information Services officer, or I'm going to say AFIS. AFIS is mm-hmm. uh, Flight Information Services. The AFIS officer suggested to the pilot to report when positioned overhead the airport. So I'm going to try to describe this a little bit for you. Okay. Like, like I said, this airport is in a valley, so there's mountains on all sides of it. The proper procedure as published, remember, this is a visual, um, visual approach, so they have to be able to see the airport the entire time. The proper approach you're supposed to take is you're supposed to fly over the airport, take a left turn, then kind of circle to the right and come around on the right, make a right turn onto final, and then land. That's, so it's kind, of, mm. it's kind of roundabout. And that's just because it's in a valley and it's like hard right. to reach. And, it's, and it, I guess it's a small airport. Yeah, it's not very big. That's actually one of the reasons they fly the ATR-42. They can't get bigger planes in here. Oh. Like I said, remember, this is a, very, this is a much smaller plane, so it's, it's a little more versatile. And, uh, you know, this, the whole purpose of this is to give them enough, you know, enough space to slow down, keep an eye on the field, you know, deploy their flaps, get ready to land, have a very nice stabilized approach. Yeah. So that's why the AFIS officer told them report when overhead the airport because that's the proper procedure. Fly over the airport, pass it, take a left, and kind of loop around, almost like a like a slightly askew racetrack, almost like a big oval. Okay. The pilot said that instead they intended to fly direct to a left base for runway eleven. So what they were going to do is instead of flying over the airport and taking this long oval, they just wanted to kind of come in perpendicular to the runway and then make a quick left turn down onto the runway to land. Instead of doing this long oval around to the and airport. why did the they right. want to do this? It's faster. Okay. And had they done this before? They actually did this. Remember I said this is their second flight into the airport okay. of the day? Yeah. They did it on their previous leg. Okay. It's not the correct procedure. And you know how we feel about <laughs> procedures and checklists <laughs> uh-huh. on this podcast. So the Oxabil AFIS officer advised the pilot to continue their approach and to call when positioned on final to runway 11. So what he's saying is, Okay, go ahead. Let me know when you've made that final turn. So when you're on final, that means when you're lined up and you're ready to land. You know, when you're lined up directly on the runway and you're, uh, that's called final. Okay. So the AFIS officer says, okay, let me know when you're on final. So the investigation team analyzed the crew's motivation to deviate from the standard approach. And like I said, they observed that the crew's previous flight earlier on the same day, they did, they did this exact same thing. They joined directly on the left base. Because kind of where they're coming in from already, they're coming in mm-hmm. from the north like coming kind of straight in on the left base is 
it's pretty much straight in for them. Like, oh, let's just go this way and then make a quick left turn and we'll be we'll land. Okay. Investigators then stated the crew may have been overconfident with their flying skill. Due to their previous success on landing an aircraft prior to the accident, the crew may have believed that they would have been able to conduct a similar maneuver without adverse consequences. The aircraft was installed with the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, EGPWS, which was a modification to the previously installed Ground Proximity Warning System. The Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System was not equipped with internal GPS to provide the aircraft position. After completion of the installation, the operator issued document, uh, it's a document number, which uh, referred to the ATR service bulletin to perform operational and functional tests to the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System. This, I'll I'll explain all this in a second. Uh (laughs) This service bulletin is applicable only to aircraft fitted with a specific GPS, which was not the case in this plane. Uh The service bulletin stated, should ATR-42 operator wish to embody this modification, please contact the manufacturer. The modification of the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, including prerequisite service bulletins, were not communicated by the aircraft operator to the aircraft manufacturer. So all this is saying is that they installed this Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, and we've talked about this before. This is the alert that lets them know if they're about to hit the ground. Yeah. Normally, the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System works with GPS to know where the plane is, and that's how it knows the terrain around them and knows if they're getting too low and gives them the alert. Uh They didn't have updated GPS in this plane, even though they had the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System. So they had the Enhanced Ground Proximity Uh Warning System without the GPS properly updated to alert, alert them at their appropriate times. There's not as much fine detail in there. So, but it still works, but just not. It was outdated well? information. Oh, outdated. Yeah. And according to the bulletins, I remember I read all these service bulletins and whatnot. If they wanted to perform this kind of installation, they needed to contact the manufacturer, but they never did. Because there's additional steps and additional things you need to do in order to make sure it's working right. Mm. And they just kind of didn't. They, they kind of half installed the system and then just left it there. Like installed, it's working, but it doesn't have all the updates. Well, and then on top of that, the investigators discovered that the circuit... So, all of that aside, uh-huh. the investigators discovered that the circuit breaker responsible for the enhanced ground proximity warning system had been intentionally pulled by the crew. What? They had disabled it. They had just pulled the circuit breaker because since it wasn't working entirely correctly, they uh-huh. didn't want to hear all the false alarms. Oh. So they just disabled it so that it wouldn't give them false alarms. The downside is, of course, it doesn't give them real alarms either. Oh, my God. Why would they install? Why would they put it in and then not properly set it up? That's a good question. So remember earlier when I said that the Ministry of Transportation said that their uh, air navigation equipment system was outdated? Mm -hmm. This is the part where it kind of plays into that. Yeah. Uh, Normally, this would not be a huge deal. That's why this airport has a visual approach Uh because with visual approaches you can see you don't need a system telling you you're about to collide with the ground you can see with your own eyes if you're about to do that that's the reason that there is no precision approach at this airport they don't have the facilities to do it they don't have the technology to do it so that's why they're supposed to take this long roundabout racetrack Mm -hmm. visual approach to land did they fly through a cloud or something yeah they flew right right through a cloud and and, oh. and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but yeah, ah. that is correct. They, they flew through a cloud and lost sight of the runway and lost sight of the mountains. And without the enhanced ground proximity warning system to tell them what was going on and where they were, they didn't know. That, in fact, that's one of the things the investigators said when they finally pulled the black boxes from this plane and listening back to the cockpit voice recorder. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the things they said was, the, like, the tape just ends. Oh, sh- 
Ooh. There's yeah, like you don't hear the pilots yelling anything or trying anything. There's no, there's nothing. It's just normal flight, and then the tape ends. Gus, I want to say I think that's the scariest. Yeah, that's that's unnerving, right? Yeah, the scariest uh, black box is that. Yeah, it's like no alarm, no warnings, nothing. Just hey, what are you doing? I don't know. What are you gonna do when we land? I, like the middle of conversation, everything's fine, and then just nothing. Because it's that. That snap of just like, oh my god, that's yeah, super. It's just that's super. Instant. Yeah, it's like kind of stuff that gives you chills. <laughs> yeah. So I want to. I'm going to rewind for just a little bit here. So remember, I uh, like I said, this enhanced ground proximity warning system works off of these terrain databases. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it lets the GPS tells the plane where it is, and then it compares it to a terrain database that's installed mm-hmm. to let them know if they're in, in danger. And the terrain database that was installed in this plane was released in 2014. And this specific airport, the Oxabil Airport, was not included in the high-resolution update in this version of the terrain database. Remember, like I said, it was out of date. Mm. These terrain databases normally get updated all the time. For it to be a year expired is appalling. Oh, and this was... Wait, wait, this is 2015, and it was installed in 2014. Right. So... So, yeah, it was extremely out of date. I don't know about these big planes, but when you fly, you know... Like even the small Cessnas that I fly, mm-hmm. those terrain databases get updated like every month. Really? That's weird to me. And I don't, I, and maybe because I don't deal with topography maps often, but um, how is it being updated? Is it like, is the elevation changing? It's, like- it's, it's probably something you're not thinking about, Chris. It's uh, construction, towers. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's it, it seems it seems weird, right? Like the, uh-huh. the earth doesn't change that much. It, <laughs> yeah. There's 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 obstacles, towers, mm. power lines, uh, all kinds of stuff that needs to be updated in these. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So in this case, it wasn't necessarily a tower. Uh, you know, it's a mountain, but there's still the terrain database is still out of date. And in this case, you know, the top of a mountain, trees could be growing. Oh yeah. Like that could be something else that you have to worry about. Anyway, so there, are, there, are, there, there is definitely a need to stay on top of these updates. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Quite literally. <laughs> yeah. And again, anyway, they weren't supposed to be, they shouldn't have needed this. They, they should have been on a visual approach. Yeah. Anyway, the aircraft operator issued visual approach guidance charts. Like I said, they have a chart for the procedure they're supposed to follow. And the chart said the minimum safe altitude was 8,000 feet of where the aircraft impacted the mountain. That being said, the aircraft hit the mountain at about 8,300 feet. So the chart said they should have been safe. They were 300 feet above the minimum required they altitude. They were not on the correct path. Right. They were, they were off the path. But still, the chart shows you in each direction what your minimum safe altitude is. Then, then what happened? Remember, like I said, this area really hadn't been explored and there'd really been nobody up there. Oh. Uh, the chart was wrong. Oh. The, the mountain was oh. a little higher than they thought it was. Shoot. But again, they shouldn't have been here. This shouldn't have been an issue if they had taken their left, if they had flown over the airport and taken the left turn and, you know, and entered on the visual approach. Again, if they had maintained visual approach and been able to see, and if they had followed the published procedure, they would not have been in this location. That being said, the chart was wrong. The chart said they would be safe down to 8,000 feet, but they hit the mountain at 8,300 feet. Did they discover the mountain? <laughs> I know that's a weird thing to they, think. They about. did not discover the mountain. Everyone <laughs> knew the mountain was there. Just, I guess, they didn't know precise, you know, with much precision where, yeah, how tall it was. Okay. 
When it comes to personal hygiene, who has time to read that long list of ingredients on the back of the bottle? Some ingredients I can't even pronounce, and I can pronounce a lot of words. Uh, if you're like me and you care about what goes in your body, then it's time to try native personal care products like I did. Every native product is thoughtfully formulated to keep you feeling and smelling fresh all day long. You know Native for their aluminum-free deodorant. Native keeps their ingredient list bare naked with ingredients you understand, like coconut oil, shea butter, and baking soda. Native deodorant checks a lot of boxes, 72-hour odor protection, naturally derived ingredients, and a smooth, residue-free application. Native also offers a variety of scents with new and limited edition scents being released all the time. When you use Native, you'll smell amazing all day long thanks to their long-lasting scents. Want to smell spicy and woodsy or clean and fresh? Native has scent options for everyone. They've got some uh, limited edition cabin collection scents uh, like warm cider and cinnamon, cashmere and rain, toasted marshmallow and vanilla, wildwood and cardamom. Uh, I think they're all great. Uh, personally, I'm kind of a cider and cinnamon person myself. It makes me feel all warm when it's cold outside like it's starting to get now. Uh, now's the time to make the switch from an antiperspirant to native. When you visit their site, you can discover all their fresh scents and maybe even try out one of their body washes while you're at it. I love their uh, aluminum-free uh, ingredients. They've got uh, no plastic packaging as well. Uh, it's super great. I love what they're doing for deodorant. So smell and feel fresh all day long with Native. Get 20% off your first order by going to nativedeo.com slash blackboxdown or use promo code blackboxdown at checkout. That's nativedeo, uh, or as we like to say uh, in aviation, it's nativedeltaechooscar.com slash blackboxdown or use promo code blackboxdown at checkout for 20% off your first order. Are you captivated by the unknown? Do you obsess over unexplained phenomena? Do you frighten easily? Behold Red Web, a podcast all about unsolved mysteries, true crime, conspiracies, and the supernatural. With an appetite for the unknown, hosts Trevor Collins and Alfredo Diaz dissect a new unsolved mystery every week from true crime to paranormal events and conspiracies. Each episode dives into the timelines, the facts, and the popular theories that attempt to explain what really is happening with these strange incidents. Join them this month as they explore haunted houses like the Blood House at Fountain Drive, Winchester Mystery House, Amityville House, and Demon House of Gary, Indiana. So check out Red Web now, available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to get the episodes a day early, head over to redwebpod.com. From New Line Cinema, Dwayne Johnson stars in the action-adventure Black Adam. The first ever feature film to explore the story of the DC superhero comes to the big screen under the direction of Jomé Colette Serra, who you may know from Jungle Cruise. In ancient Kandak, Teth Adam was bestowed the almighty powers of the gods. After using these powers for vengeance, he was imprisoned, becoming Black Adam. Nearly 5,000 years have passed and Black Adam has gone from man to myth to legend. Now released, his unique form of justice, born out of rage, is challenged by modern-day heroes who form the Justice Society. Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Adam Smasher, and Cyclone. Johnson stars alongside Aldous Hodge as Hawkman, Noah Centineo as Adam Smasher, Sarah Shahi, Marwan Kenzari, Quintessa Swindell as Cyclone, Mo Amer, Modi Sabangui, and Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Fate. Colette Sarah directed from a screenplay written by Adam Stekiel and Rory Haynes and Sorab Noshiravni, based on characters from DC, based on characters created by Bill Parker and C.C. Beck. The film's producers are Bo Flynn, Hiram Garcia, Dwayne Johnson, and Danny Garcia, with Toby Emmerich, Richard Brenner, Dave Neustadter, Chris Pan, uh, Walter Hamada, Adam Schlegman, Jeff Johns, Eric McLeod, and Scott Sheldon, executive producing. The director's behind-the-scenes creative team includes Oscar-nominated director of photography, Lawrence Scher, production designer Tom Mayer, editors... Mike Sale and John Lee, costume designers Kurt and Bart, Oscar-winning visual effects supervisor Bill Westenhofer, and composer Lorne Balfe. New Line Cinema presents a Seven Bucks Flynn Company production, a Jomé Colette Sarah film, Black Adam, smashing into theaters and IMAX internationally beginning on October 19th, in North America on October 21st, 
2022. It'll be distributed worldwide by Warner Brother Pictures. You can watch Black Adam in theaters and IMAX internationally October 19th and in North America October 21st. So at 5.55 UTC, the spectrum analysis detected the lowest engine torque recorded. The torque maintained the lowest value recorded for approximately one minute, indicating that the engine power had been achieved for the target schedule speed for descent. Subsequently, the torque slightly increased after landing gear and flap extended. I'll explain that more here in just a second. Let me, uh, let me read a couple, a couple more sentences. The aircraft wreckage was found on a ridge of Tango Mountain, Okbape District, Oxibil, at approximately 8,300 feet. Airborne searches spotted the wreckage about 7 miles or 12 kilometers away from Oxibil. According to uh, the search team officials, the train had been previously unexplored by humans. Remember, I said that before. Uh-huh. Bad weather and low visibility hindered the search, but after three days, 17 bodies have been carried out from the crash site and identified uh, using DNA and tooth samples. So investigators actually had to rebuild the flight path that the plane took because of a year-long maintenance problem with the flight data recorder. The flight data recorder actually was not working on this plane. They had a lot of things going on. They had a lot of problems, Chris. That's why I said before, remember I said I'll explain this in a second, they were using spectrum analysis to detect engine torque. Since the flight data recorder wasn't working, they didn't know what the engine settings were, so they had to listen to the cockpit voice recorder and do an analysis of the audio that the engines were generating. So like they listened to it and they're like, okay, now the engines are at this setting. Now the engines are at this setting. That's how, that's how they know what the engine power settings were by listening to the cockpit voice recorder because the flight data recorder wasn't working. That is crazy. Yeah, you've worked in audio. You understand. You're like, oh, you can look at the waveform and do an analysis and figure out. That's a lot. But, but yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of unnecessary work. Yeah. So they ended up having to use, oddly enough, they ended up having to use Google Earth and data from the oh cockpit God. voice recorder uh, to try to recreate the flight, you know, that's to try so- to figure out where it was. I know that the internet has done a lot of, it just seems weird that they're like, look it up on Google Earth. You know, like doing that just seems. I will say uh, in preparing to record this episode, I spent a lot of time on Google Earth, (laughs) Google Maps, trying to map this out to see where it was and to try to wrap my head around how the mountains were laid out in this incident. It's really amazing to have that amount of information readily available to you but it's strange that i was looking at the same thing the investigators were looking yeah at. that's i guess what i mean is like that that's the most the best there is you know mm-hmm. but i mean i don't know like you said it's not an area that's visited right it's a remote mountaintop uh you know how else are you going to get a look at it yeah so using this information they found out that the crew like i said they stated their intention to make a direct left base And immediately after that, flight 267 deviated from the standard approach path. They deviated to the right into mountainous terrain. And the pilots had previously reported that the unpredictable weather could cause problems with fog that would come out of nowhere and limit visibility. And like I said, the maintenance record provided by the operator showed that the flight data recorder had a serviceability issue since April 4th, 2012. So it had been acting up for three years it became a repetitive problem resulting in the accident flight data not being recorded. So for three years off and on, this flight data recorder had been messed up and it didn't record anything on this flight. Mm. The cockpit voice recorder was recovered on August 19th, 2015. And the data was you know, recovered. And like I said, they, and that's some of the stuff we've been talking about here. The recording data included the approach on the previous flight from Sintani to Oxabil. Remember I said this was their second flight. So the cockpit voice recorder even had their previous landing. During the accident flight, the cockpit voice recorder did not record enhanced ground proximity warning systems warnings up to the impact, nor any crew briefing and checklist reading from crews up to the impact. 
So on top of there not being any warnings from the enhanced ground proximity warning system, they also noticed the crew didn't run their checklists. They didn't run their checklists? Yep. That's uh, awful. You know, normally, when, you know, there's a cruise checklist, as uh-huh. the name implies, when you're cruising. And then there's, there will be a descent checklist when you begin your descent. Then, you know, you're supposed to brief your approach. And then there's a landing checklist or mm-hmm. before landing checklist. They didn't do their descent checklist. They didn't brief their approach. They were just kind of were going along with it. They're just, just. I was going to say they were winging it, but that didn't seem <laughs> right. <laughs> so the last data entry logged at 5.57 and 40 seconds indicated they had flaps set to 15 and gear down were confirmed, except for the absence of the ground proximity warning system warnings. No evidence of any other aircraft system malfunction was obtained from the cockpit voice recorder data. With proper maintenance and fully functioning positioning equipment, the outcome of Trigana Air Flight 267 may have landed safely. This event identified several safety issues before the crash that could have been addressed prior to takeoff. The pilots also seem to have disabled their own enhanced ground proximity warning system by pulling the circuit breaker powering the alarm due to the belief that the warnings would be triggered by malfunction. Remember, like I said, the information was out of date. Mm-hmm. The GPS wasn't current. They just didn't want to hear the, the alarms, the, the false alarms. Mixed with incorrect information issued in the visual approach guidance, this accident seemed to have suffered a fatal user error. The fatal outcome of Trigana Air Flight 267 put a global spotlight on Indonesian aviation safety, where the death rate was 25 times that of American Whoa. aviation. Yeah, um, they have had a very checkered safety history. We've talked about several uh, yeah, Indonesian I, Now that you uh, mention it, yeah. yeah. That being said, I guess they do have a lot of mountains. Yeah, I, I think we, we said that in one of yeah. our episodes, that it was the most mountainous country in the world. Yeah. As an outcome of the investigation, the Indonesian government stated it would work with AirNav Indonesia to upgrade the infrastructure in Papua, and experts have concluded that better training of pilots is necessary, strict adherence to safety protocols is imperative, and further investments must be made to improve infrastructure. Yeah, it was uh, all around a huge, huge mess for for many, many reasons. But if you're going to boil it down... I'll read their causes and the recommendations here in a bit. But, uh, you know, from what we've talked about so far, you can boil it down to it was a visual approach that they did not brief or follow. They, you know, tried to Mm. make their own approach, flew into a cloud with a chart that had bad information and hit a mountain. This is like so many little things. And I don't even know if they're little. You could say they might some of them might be big things. Right. All of them avoidable, (laughs) but still I mean, it's just a lot of compounding factors. All right. So uh, the causes that the report found here. The deviation from the visual approach guidance in visual flight rules without considering the weather and terrain condition with no or limited visual reference to the terrain resulted uh, in the aircraft flying into terrain. So again, that just says they deviated from their visual approach and they hit that mountain. Remember, like I said, initially, some people speculated that there may have been bad weather. The weather was... Okay, they, they should have been able to land their proper approach, but there were a couple of clouds forming. Like I said, some pilots said that clouds did form mm-hmm. around these mountains. They, in, in, you know, when the investigator spoke to the air traffic controller at the time, he said that there were clouds over in that direction forming on that mountain. So you know, they flew right into those clouds, mm. thinking they were at a safe altitude, but the chart was wrong and they hit a mountain. That's, that's the scariest part to me is though, normally those charts give very specific altitudes, like minimums or like altitudes you're supposed to stay within. Mm-hmm. When you look at those charts, you're supposed to be guaranteed safe at those altitudes. That like is all of that is precise. really scary. Yeah. 
So even though they did so many things wrong, the fact that that chart said they should have been safe at that altitude and they weren't is really super concerning. Then at that point, you have to question every chart uh-huh. in, in, in that area, in that, you know, anyone that's been made by that, uh, by that agency. Oh, yeah. What agency makes the charts? Well, uh, in the United States, it's the FAA. Out in Indonesia, I assume it's, you know, their equivalent to whoever their civil aviation authority is in Indonesia probably makes those charts. Uh, number two cause, the absence of enhanced ground proximity warning system warnings to alert the crew of the immediate hazardous situation led to the crew not being aware of the situation. Again, they pulled that circuit breaker uh, and it had outdated information. You know, chances are if they had not pulled the circuit breaker, it probably would have warned them, but it probably would have also been giving them false positives before that too. So mm-hmm. they probably, even if they hadn't pulled it, they probably would have been ignoring it because it was, it would have been giving bad data. And number three, these issues were compounded by shortcomings in Trigana air safety culture. And uh, they, they actually, so, you know, again, this is an Indonesian investigative agency. Uh, the report's a little different. They actually have a separate section in here for C- cockpit voice recorder findings. On the previous flight during the approach into Oxabil, the cockpit voice recorder did not record enhanced ground proximity warning system altitude call out of 500. Normally, you know, I'm sure you've seen videos, we've talked about this, where, you know, you hear the, the aircraft tell you 500 you know, when you're 500 feet above the ground, mm-hmm. they did not hear that on the previous uh, approach, mm. which is just because the circuit breaker had been pulled. The last time they did this, you said they did it in the morning? Yeah, well, I, I don't, yeah, what, yeah, I think it was in the morning, yeah. Like, how, what did they do? I guess they, they, they were, how, what did they do differently? Like, I mean, if they were they coming the same direction? Like, the clouds hadn't formed yet at that point in the day. And they just... They eyeballed it. They eyeballed it, but they weren't aware that they were like, could this could have been dangerous? I guess I'm thinking like, if you're flying through it and you've already seen it, could they not have seen like, oh wow, that mountain's? I guess they didn't recognize how far away the mountain was, or right, or they they weren't paying attention very precisely mm. to the altimeter, like how high they were. Yeah, like if it's if it's a non-event, you don't pay attention mm, to it. Yeah. Like if you think about like how fast did you go down the road out to work the other day? Like I don't know. Uh, yeah. Whatever was appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like if you're not specifically, if there's no specific reason to pay attention to it, you don't pay attention to it. That's true. At 5:49 and 11 seconds UTC, the flight cruised at 11,500 feet via W66. It's just a route up to Point Mellum and then to Abmis Sibyl. At five, it's just talking about how I believe that was their cruising altitude. They were on their air route between a couple of uh, waypoints. At 5:54 and 22 seconds, the pilot confirmed seeing another aircraft which was passing by. At 5.55 UTC, the first communication between pilot and Oxabil AFIS officer was conducted when the aircraft positioned over Abmissibil and the pilot stated the intention to fly direct to left base, runway 11. This was probably the start of everything going wrong when they decided to do a direct left base entry to the runway instead of the published visual approach flying over it and making that right racetrack turn. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's actually one of the images I'm going to post on our social media is I'm going to post the, the visual approach plate that they use for this, though that they should have used for this, that shows mm. that you know, long kind of winding path to come into land. At 5.57 and 40 seconds, the pilot had extended the flaps and landing gear in preparation for landing. And the cockpit voice recorder did not record enhanced ground proximity warning systems warning up to the impact. The cockpit voice recorder did not record any crew briefing and checklist reading recorded from cruising up to the impact. Uh, now I've got the, the findings here. So the KNKT, which is, uh, this, is this, this is another language, so forgive me. This is the only time I'm going to say it. The Comité Nacional Kessel Matan Transportasi, 
KNKT, <laughs> it's the investigative agency, uh, they determined the findings of the investigation listed as follow. The aircraft had valid certificate of airworthiness and was operated within weight and balance envelope. All crew had valid licenses and medical certificates. So plane was fine, crew was fine. The flight plan form was filled with intention to fly under instrument flight rule at flight level 155 with route from Centani to Mellum via Airways W66 and Oxibil. The mora of W66 between Centani and Mellum was 18,000 feet. That's just saying what their flight plan was. They were going to cruise at 15,500 feet along the airway and then mm-hmm. come into uh, Oxibil. The flight was the fifth of the day for the crew with the same aircraft and the second flight on the same route of Centani to Oxibil. The cockpit voice recorder data revealed that the previous flight from Centani to Oxibil, the flight cruised at an altitude of 11,500 feet and the approach was conducted by direct to left base runway 11. The CVR data also revealed that on the accident flight, the flight cruised at an altitude of 11,500 feet and intended to direct left base leg runway 11, which was deviated from the operator visual guidance approach that described the procedure to fly overhead the airport prior to approach to runway 11. So just saying they were doing the same thing again, that left base, direct left mm-hmm. base instead of flying over the airport. The witness stated that most of the time the flight crew deviated from the operator visual approach guidance. The deviation did not identify by the aircraft operator. So they were just saying this was a common thing where they would not do the published visual approach and would do this into the left base leg of the, the flight or of the, the approach. Common for lots of people, not just them. I think, like, yeah, lots of people were, do, were just, doing this. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to get on the ground faster. They were just trying to save time. Yeah. And we know how that goes. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't take shortcuts. The, everything, <laughs> everything exists for a reason. The downloading process to retrieve data from the flight data recorder was unsuccessful due to the damage of the flight data recorder unit that most likely did not record data during the accident flight. The repetition problems of the flight data recorder unit showed that the aircraft operator's surveillance to the repair station was not effective. So flight data recorder was just broken. Mm-hmm. The cockpit voice recorder did not record any crew briefing, checklist reading, and enhanced ground proximity warning system altitude callout prior to land on two previous flights, nor the enhanced ground proximity warning system caution and warning prior to impact. The spectrum analysis of the cockpit voice recorder determined that both engines were operating prior to the impact. Like I said, they had to listen to the cockpit voice recorder to listen to the engines. Several pilots had behavior of pulling the enhanced ground proximity warning system circuit breaker to eliminate the nuisance of enhanced ground proximity warning system warnings. The pilot stated the reason for pulling the circuit breaker was due to the pilots considered this warning activation was not appropriate for the flight conditions. The correction of this behavior was not performed prior to the accident. So it wasn't just this pilot who was pulling the circuit breaker. Several pilots had this habit of just popping Mm -hmm. the circuit breaker to silence the alarm. Bad, bad habits. Yeah, there's super bad habit. The installation of the enhanced ground... Well, that's a bad habit caused by this next thing I'm about to read. The installation of the enhanced ground proximity warning system by the aircraft operator was not conducted according to the service bulletin issued by the aircraft manufacturer. They kind of, like you said earlier, they kind of like half installed it and then just left it. And when the proper procedure should have been, they should have contacted the manufacturer and the manufacturer would have helped Mm -hmm. them find a way to get it working properly. Or told them, you can't do this. That's, probably, that's actually probably why they didn't contact the manufacturer. <laughs> manufacturer would have told them it's not going to work this way. Probably, it's like the equivalent of you know, putting your fingers in your ears and saying it's fine. Oh, God. The terrain database installed in the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System was released in 2014. The Oxibil Airport was not included in the high-resolution update in this version of the terrain database. The information for Oxibil published did not include approach guidance. The operator issued visual guidance of circling approach runway 11 for internal use. The visual approach guidance chart stated the minimum safe altitude was 8,000 feet, while the aircraft impacted with terrain at approximately 8,300 feet. 
This indicated incorrect information in the chart. The investigation considered that the pattern on the approach guidance chart was not easy to fly as many altitudes and headings changes. So they should have been safe, but they weren't because the altitude was wrong. And they also looked at the pattern on the approach chart and said it was difficult. Even if they had followed it the way it was published, Uh it was still very difficult because there's a lot of altitude and heading changes. Like I said, they fly over the airport, kind of take a left and enter like this right turn as they're, you know, descending the whole time. It was kind of difficult. I wouldn't, you know, with especially, it's, and it's because of the mountains. It's a difficult airport to get into. But that being said, they didn't mm-hmm. fly that pattern anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Several maintenance records, such as component status installed on the aircraft and installation of uh, enhanced ground proximity warning system was not well documented. This indicated the maintenance management was not well performed, as I'm sure you could yeah. probably have guessed yeah. based on what we've heard so far. The investigation could not find any regulation that describes the pilot training requirement for any addition or modification of aircraft system, which affect the aircraft operation. Several safety issues indicated that the organization oversight of the aircraft operator by the regulator was not well implemented. So even like government oversight of the airline was not done well. Mm. But yeah, that's it. That wraps up everything for Trigana Air Flight 267. I've said this a lot in episodes. But again, super, super frustrating for many reasons. There were many steps along the way. Many, like lots of times we talk about like, oh, it's lots of little things that lined up to cause Mm -hmm. an accident. This was like lots of big things Mm -hmm. uh, lined up where any one of these things could have been avoided and everything would have been okay. You know, if they had flown the approach, the way it was published, right, they wouldn't have been where they where they shouldn't have been you know they wouldn't have mattered that the chart had a bad safe altitude on it uh wouldn't have mattered the enhanced ground proximity warning system wasn't (laughs) working uh you know it would have been fine if they had run their checklist it might have been avoided (sighs) checklist well i guess that one seems the smallest of the yeah and i say that not 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 to uh mean that checklists are less important but in this the other ones are so big (laughs) Right, there were so many other bigger yeah. glaring issues. Just overall, tons of tons of problems. Uh, you know, and, and normally in a modern setting, especially you know, this was 2015. This was only you know not that long ago from when we're recording this episode. In modern airports, you know, with updated equipment, you can fly really low, trusting your instruments without seeing anything. You know, here in Austin, you know where we live. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. I think that. You could come out of the clouds like 180 feet above the runway and land it. Like you don't oh, need to see scary. it until like right <laughs> at the last second. So you know you can fly in the clouds the whole way, and that's because you can trust the charts. You can trust that there is modern, you know, ILS equipment to help navigate the plane safely. You know, through not being able to see anything and come in and make a perfect landing. It's still kind of scary though. Yeah, it's still kind of scary, <laughs> but the systems work. You know, we yeah we you know we have faith in them. We have faith that the pilots are following the procedures that are published and that all of the technology is working as it should. And, you know, things are, things are safe. You don't have to, you don't, you don't, you never think about it. I bet when you're on a plane and you're flying through a cloud as you're coming into land, you never, I'm sure you never get worried about it. It's like, yeah, no. this is, this is what happens all the time. The whole system's designed for this mm-hmm. a little different in a Valley, you know, in a remote part of the world, but entirely avoidable. Yeah. All right, but that's it for this episode of Black Box Down. Like Chris said earlier, don't forget to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, if you'd like to get the episodes ad-free and a little early, check out blackboxdownpod.com. 
uh, for two ninety nine a month. You could have that. You could have. You could stretch your legs out uh, with our with our first class experience. Yeah, and please, yeah, give consider helping out if you're enjoying the show because it's like, I mean, that's that's like way less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, but it's more expensive than a cup of coffee on a plane. Yeah, but we also talked about that. Which you shouldn't be drinking. <laughs> Which is, yeah, don't drink the coffee on a plane. And uh, you know what? The holidays are coming up. Don't forget, uh, we have merch you can uh, pick up uh, for either yourself or for someone who you think might, who you think enjoys the podcast. Uh, you can see that in our link tree on social media or go to store.roosterteeth.com. Uh, there's a whole black box down section there. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.